In northeastern Pennsylvania, there's a town called Centralia. Centralia was once a thriving coal mining community, home to thousands of people. But in May of 1962, a fire was started in a garbage dump near an open coal seam. The fire was thought to be extinguished, but actually continued underground, often releasing gas and flame to the surface above, until the town of thousands eventually dwindled to less than a dozen. The fire still rages today and shows no sign of stopping. The following podcast is in no way related to Centralia, Pennsylvania. And now... Direct from New York City, an island off the coast of America, it's the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. This is the Centralia Improvisational Podcast where we talk improv, we do some improv, we listen to some recorded shows that we've done live over the years, and uh... Today it's uh, it's me and Matt, me being Kevin, Kevin and Matt from Centralia. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing great, Kevin. Hey, is this window open a problem? I don't think so. Matt's really concerned with this podcast looks like. No, no, I'm not the not this. I'm talking about the sound. Oh no, that sounds fine. I think so. Yes. I mean, nothing's going to be louder than the voices in my head. Okay, I closed it anyway. So, so I think I think we're fine. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about improv and you podcast listeners if you've downloaded your streaming maybe your manservant transcribed it and you're just reading the words you're going to get to listen in on our thoughts on improv which from my experience is a moving target not just from year to year but from day to day my thoughts and theories of improv change they hopefully evolve and get better do they ever regress all the time, all the time. Like, not to say that, like, I started doing improv as a way to be funny. Like, it was comedy, and I didn't care about anything else but comedy. And that comes and goes. You know what I mean? Sometimes I'm like, it's an art form, and I'm going to dive in, and I'm going to change the world. And then sometimes I'm like, I think the audience just wants to have fun, and I want to have fun. And so I sort of go back, back, and hopefully I'm both things in a night. The best is when I'm both things simultaneous, but I don't know if that always happens. So there is some digression, but it's never permanent. Is it regression or digression? It's both. Okay. So we're going to talk about a bunch of different things, I think, improv theory-wise. Um, I often describe our relationship in improv like I come at it from a director standpoint and you come at it from an actor standpoint, and that hopefully those things jive well in the show. Like, you know, I always tell my students, you know, you should just be in the moment. You should be listening, reacting, you know, do all the improv stuff we're taught to do. And occasionally, you know, like when you're not in the scene, you can put on a writer's hat or a director's hat and sort of say, okay, what do we need next? Mm -hmm. Or what does this story need? Or what does this show need in terms of energy, dynamism, excitement, space? You know, what does it need to be a complete uh, show? I don't know if you ever check in on that stuff or if you're always, 
you strike me as someone who's always in the moment reacting to the, what's ever happening. Is that true? I, the thing that I think is really cool about our relationship um, in, in general and also on stage is that I feel that we, um, I feel that you keep me uh, sort of alert and on my toes. And um, I, I feel that I, it's, it's, um, it's not an effort to listen. Um, I'm just like sort of naturally am uh, sort of on my toes. And uh, a lot of times I feel like sometimes I like I'm just I'm just following uh, and then just following and kind of listening and, and just waiting. Um, and then uh, and then when I feel the, uh, <clears throat> the sort of like the impulse or whatever, then I, I just sort of like burst out and uh, go for it. Where do you think that impulse comes from? Like what's what's the spark? Like, is it? A funny idea or or what um i think that it is uh i don't i don't really know what it is i think that it's probably coming from uh i, I think it's probably from getting uh, sort of fully involved like so like while we're on stage and we're we're playing for me definitely uh, sort of like everything else goes away, like everything kind of, uh, you know, everything else sort of stops and I'm just there and I'm just playing with, with you and with uh, the other guys. And so I don't, I think it, I think it just comes from uh, just being like fully, just like fully playing. And sometimes it takes, sometimes I don't get there. Like a lot of times, like, I'll walk out going like, oh, I don't know if I was tired before the show or if I was whatever, maybe I didn't have enough to eat or, you know, whatever. I wasn't, I wasn't able to sort of get into that play state. Yeah. Um, but then when I do, uh, I don't know where the impulses come from. I just kind of uh, just sort of like find myself going toward them if that makes sense, but that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. It's, it's like songwriters who talk about when they write songs, they don't know where the good songs come from. They know when they're not getting ideas and it's work, but then like when a song appears, it's just there and they're like, all right, a song popped in my head and you just have to be ready to, you know, get it on paper at that point. Uh, a lot of times, uh, like we've been doing, well, first of all, you and I have known each other for a very long time. And yep. since 1988, before I was even born. Yeah, before you were born in 1988. Uh, and, and, uh, and I, you know, know Jay and Patrick for a really long time. And so I feel like in some ways, we are not necessarily uh, improvising as much as we are like clowning and playing and goofing. Uh, so I often filter out choices um, and accept the ones that I think you guys might think are hilarious. I would choose something different if I'm playing with you than I would play in a different group, like a, a jam or something like that, that would pick a more general audience choice. 
um, or you know, or general narrative choice. But when I'm playing with you and Jay and Pat, I will often pick something like Matt will think this is funny, or this will crack Jay up. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, we could, you know, we could, we'll we'll circle back to what it's like to play together, play with an ensemble. Um, but I had mentioned earlier that I wanted to talk to you about solo improv, which is something I've never done and you've done a ton of. And I guess we'll just start from the the most general sense of like, what's the difference in doing solo improv versus group improv? Like what, what different, what's different in terms of preparation and what's different in the moment? Uh, wow. Um, I guess what is, uh, well, I guess what's different, you know, it's just you, right? It's just one person. It's just me. And, um, I guess it's, uh, huh. I think that like in some ways the store, the, what I improvise, it is, is a little bit like on one hand, it's more linear, right? It's like it, on one hand, it's, uh, the, the structure is clear, like after I'm done. And, uh, in terms of like the preparation, I definitely, uh, I definitely try to, uh, you know, I try to relax. Uh, I have like a, a, I have a little bit of a meditation that I do before, um, you know, the past few times I've done it, which is kind of cool. The, uh, the other thing that I do before I go on is that I remind myself of, of story structure and, um, and I, I think about it and then before, I go out, I, I just let it go. And I, I trust that, um, I trust that like a dream, like the, the structure is built in like that. I, you know, why even look at the structure before I go on? Uh, because we're just wired that way. I guess it's a uh, Carl Jung, uh, right. It's, it's a kind of, um, that if I can get out there and, um, one of the coolest, reviews that we've ever gotten uh is that the reviewer said that they they felt like they it was having a front seat at a stranger's dream do you remember that review that we yep. got yeah. yeah was that the daily news yeah i think it was the daily news or or maybe it was the village voice the now defunct village voice which was a super cool newspaper um but uh but like so i so i try to trust that like the structure will be there and then something I've been doing lately is to remind myself, you know how you start off in the ordinary world? Right? Mm -hmm. uh, I've been trying to remind myself to stay in the ordinary world longer than I think I should. Uh, and then, then to kind of recognize the, the journey once it, once it starts, once it sort of clearly starts. And then once it starts, then, uh, really anything can happen. I mean, anything can happen in the, you know, the ordinary world too, but once yeah. you cr cross that threshold, then, you know, then it doesn't have to make sense anymore. It, you know, because now we're, we're in the woods or we're in the, we're in the deep, we're in the subconscious, all that sort of thing. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Totally. It's interesting because the, the ordinary world, if your first thing out of the gate is crazy town, then that's your ordinary world. So then your bizarro world has to be even crazier 
or it's got to be really ordinary. Yeah, I know. That's something that like, you know, that that's the writer's brain and not the director's brain, like of the three improvisers brains. And some people are really good at that in recognizing that, okay, this is the ordinary world. So I have to set up these five things that we can pay off later. You know, like what do the characters want? What do they need? What's the problem that needs to be fixed? All that sort of thing. And I, I, I only recognize that stuff after it sort of happened in the show that we fixed it. And I'm like, oh, I guess, I guess we did set it up and recognize it. But I, I, it's something I wish I could do better in like just, just really playing like a writer who's like setting things up. Like I do a lot of writing on the side, you know, like for sport to try to write stuff. And as a writer, I'm an improviser. Like I sit down and I just start. And then I look at him like, what happened? You know, so I, I guess what I'm saying is I need to like take a class in writing and to memorize that. I mean, I know it. I just don't. As I'm playing, it's very hard to get in the, into that brain in terms of like story. I'm totally good coming up with funny lines, which is very writerly, but it's like setting up this is the ordinary world and we're going to, this is the character that's going to go on the journey. And, you know, and like, see, the thing is, I don't, I don't necessarily set that up. I, I just know that it's, I just know that it's going to happen. And I even try to think of it as like, as like, you know, like, uh, you know, like one of these things, the thing within the thing, like. A matroshka, a Russian nested doll. Yeah. So I kind of think of it like, as like uh when when i'm backstage i i kind of think of like that as the ordinary world and then crossing the threshold onto the stage as being, because it is because it is it yeah is. because yeah, it's yeah, yeah and and also i sort of i when i get to like a really trippy place with this stuff which is often um i also think of it as like leaving my apartment too so I'm leaving my apartment, I'm crossing the threshold. So we're always crossing these thresholds, even like getting on the subway, you know, all this stuff you could, uh, you could really uh, attach sort of like archetypal stuff to it. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah, um, totally. Well, that's where it all comes from, right? So for example, um, uh, like in like this thing that I improvised recently, there mm -hmm. was uh, my you know, the characters got into a van and then as soon as they got into a van, like it immediately occurred to me that we're in the belly of the whale. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. now this van can do anything. This van can fly or whatever. Um, and then when you meet new characters, like it's really cool. Like you're interacting with the character or, or I'm interacting with the character and then all of a sudden, like I realized, like, oh, this is this character is the helper. Oh yeah, okay. Like the character character starts, and then you recognize what their role in your structure is. So it's coming from you know, it's coming from yeah, yeah, yeah. the sort of me in the dream state or whatever. Uh, yeah. Not to be too pretentious, but but then like sort of like recognizing like, oh shit, this is what this is what my brain is floating. Right, right, right. It's, 
it's it's getting back to that instinctive stuff. I do the same thing on occasion. You know, I think we all do, where you recognize, oh, that's what's happening. And we call out, we tend to be very meta in our shows, where we just call out, you're the hero of the story, and you've got to cross that threshold and go on your way. Like, we do it as a way of saying to the audience, yeah, we recognize what we're doing. You know, it's so um, funny because uh, they, we did a show recently, and uh, we were being... Uh, we were being Roman gods or Greek gods, and then we uh, we started to start to com- uh, we start to like mix up the Greek and the Roman gods. Like for example, it was like I was either was it I was Hermes or was I Mercury? What's is are they the same thing? I think Hermes and Mercury they're both the messengers. Yeah, both the messenger. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. we started to sort of like cross these things yeah jupiter and zeus yeah and like and on one hand and jay of course was like he knows all this stuff so like on one hand it's like wow it seems super smart but then on the other hand it's kind of like not really because we don't really know it that well we just kind of know we just know enough to make it seem like we know it like we put we put all we know into a scene and people assume it's the tip of an iceberg but it's not it's the whole iceberg it's all the ice we have yeah one of my favorite characters of there's so many of them but like one of my favorite ones that comes to mind right now was patrick was playing a werewolf that was (laughs) transitioning transitioning and it was really funny because he was playing again he was you know how you know you occlude the obvious, right? Mm-hmm. You, you avoid the obvious and you play the other sort of things. Um, he was doing that and it was just so funny because we were, as I remember, you know, in hindsight, I kind of remember like sort of being, um, you know, we're compassionate toward him. We're being empathetic yeah. because, yeah. you know, and we're accepting and we're mm-hmm. not judging the, mm-hmm. the werewolf or anything. We're just sort of and and then like sort of i pull back and i go well are we making social commentary you know what i mean like what are we yeah yeah exactly or or is it none of the above we're just playing here's a question at what point do you recognize your comedic game sorry to use that term or comedic device and and lean into it like if you were to recognize oh we're occluding the obvious we're not running in fear but we're playing sensitive like, is that something you you, uh, you you do a lot of, like um, intentionally grab onto the comedy? Or do you find yourself sort of avoiding that because the comic choice seems like the obvious choice? Well, I think of it kind of like, uh, I, I think of it as kind of like, like seeing and listening to the audience and to you guys and stuff. And then like just personally, when like, what I feel like it's kind of like when somebody's rubbing your back and they get they get their thumb on that nerve, right? And um, and then like when I feel that we or whatever we have our thumb on that nerve, like don't like don't let it off, like just sort of, sort of continue doing that thing that's getting the reaction. Yeah, do it again, do it again, do it again. Or, and don't stop doing it. Don't stop. 
Don't step. Everything else can stick, can go on pause because we're. So, so it's, it's just like your, your, your narrative character choices in that you do it, you hear the reaction, you do it again before you even realize you're repeating a pattern. You're just doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and another thing is sometimes I get scared. Like I know that we record our shows, we audio record them and sometimes we video them. And sometimes that makes, sometimes I get a little scared because like I get a little afraid of, um, like I don't wanna, like I don't want to say anything. You know, sometimes I make mistakes and I say the wrong thing or something comes mm -hmm. out wrong unintentionally to be yeah. offensive or anything like that. And also that something could later on be taken out of context. Oh my God. Well, that's, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole other kettle of fish to get into. It's like, cause we started in improv when being politically correct. I mean, it wasn't even on the radar, you know, even though the words were out there as comedians, we were meant to like break rules. And, and now I think for the betterment of everyone, we're, we're much more sensitive and, and much more welcoming to all sorts of audiences of, of points of view. But there is something that's counter to the improv of follow the impulse, you know, and there are offensive people in the world so we can have offensive characters. I think it's that trick of like, you have to signal to the audience, this isn't what you really believe. This is what this character believes. Right. And just trust that you're a good person and you're not really attend, uh, attempting to offend anybody. I do it all the time. I mean, there's there's nationalities that I offend on the regular because I think it's hilarious <laughs> and it's so not right anymore. I think, you know, it's that punching down, punching up thing. Like, I, I don't like to make fun of anyone who doesn't have agency because of societal structures you know, and I like to afflict the comfortable, comfort the afflicted where I can. But sometimes, I don't know, we can slip. Mm -hmm. You know, but I, I hope, hopefully everyone gets the idea that I'm just having fun. I'm not, I'm not like a Borscht Belt comedian from the 50s making fun of people. I just, I don't know if anyone's ever seen it. I doubt anyone listening to this hasn't seen our shows. And they're like, you guys aren't offensive. But I feel like, you know. Well, just to be sensitive to that. And, uh, you know, it's another uh, thing that I think that uh, I hope that we do is, um, like, I, I really do think that what we do is uh, subversive. And I think it's really important and powerful. And um, I remember... Kevin, well, a long time ago, I was in a group called Shock of the Funny, mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. With I, Oscar. Yeah, and uh, it was. I loved being in that group. It was just great. I wish I could do it over again, only because I think that just in life, I wasn't making great, like, healthy choices. And, and I was that to. was that improv or sketch or both? It was both. But our main show, we called the main show, was uh, was improvised. And so, like, I had the train. I had the aud I auditioned to get in, and they trained me and stuff like that. It was great, and we performed. It was like I guess it was like 1991 ish, 92. Probably this was probably around like 1991, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I remember so getting this. I'm connecting this to like the 
the feeling of doing something that's subversive and whatever. So they, the uh, St. Mark's Place at First Avenue was blocked off because the police were clearing out Tompkins Square Park. And um, glad they did. Right. Uh, but, boy. Um, so, but I remember like standing there at the barricade with like props and like funny noisemakers <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. And telling the cop that like I, I have a show to do like right there, like pointing to the studio, the theater, St. Mark's Theater, you know? And like going like, I have to go right there. And they were like, oh, okay. And they let me in. And um, I don't know if we had much of an audience, but I do remember having this feeling of being on stage, doing the stuff, you know, with like all these really super funny people. And I thought this is so wild that we are in here clowning basically and improvising and, and playing while, while people are clubbing people like yeah. a block away. And, um, and I felt like this feeling of that in some way, like this was not lending itself to that. Maybe we should have been out there helping or whatever, or rioting, but right. it's still, like I even feel like today, like with all the craziness in the world, right? With uh, this nut that's in charge of our country right now. Yep. Th this, um, for those of you listening to this in the future, uh, there's a reality show host and a casino promoter of bankrupt casinos is president of the United States. A hundred years from now, you'll be looking back. This, this is going to be archived probably somewhere. And you'll be looking back as uh, trying to understand what happened to America in its final days. And we don't have an answer. We don't know how this happened. Sorry, that was that was the digression. The message that you're leaving right now, like the message you just gave the future people who might be listening to this, I this is a question to you. Is yeah. there a, an assumption that the same people will eventually win out? Like, so in other words, oh, are the I people just, yes. are the people in the future going to be like, oh, you thought that guy was bad? Well, I guess, you know, I think it goes in waves. This is a different conversation now. But I think it goes in waves and that there's periods of madness. You know, there's the teapot dome scandal. And, you know, we're, we're still coming off of like the, the Berlin Wall fell, right? So capitalism won, quote unquote. And then the next big event is probably, you know, nothing until 9-11, and then everybody spins out and doesn't know how to react. And then a huge thing for America was we elected an African-American president who was superior to many presidents. Uh, in my estimation, I, I, I probably should say it's an opinion, but I think it's a fact that he was a, a very good president. No one's perfect. And I think that really frightened the psyche of a good portion of America, that their idea of what America was, both 9-11 and then that event, just spun people out in a way that nothing had since probably, I mean, you know, the Vietnam War before that, and then World War II, you know, those big events. And what we're living through now is sort of 
World War II is like a tight five years for America's involvement, four years, really. And, you know, the Vietnam War was extended war. What we're going through now just seems so protracted and so slow-moving. This is not about improv anymore, but I will ask you this, is how does, how? because we are very politically-minded people, socially conscious, how does that kind of stuff affect your work? Like, you were just sort of saying, like, you had this feeling of, like, we're doing something, but do you feel that it's just like a, a selfish pursuit to, as therapy, or do you feel like it's somehow, what is it communicating to the audience that helps people process or move on or get tips to change the world? Yeah, uh, they, you know, a lot, this is this is what I feel, is that I, I love uh I don't have a whole lot in life. I mean, I have so much love and that's mm -hmm. everything. And I feel that if this is, again, this might sound pretentious, but if, if we can be like an example of, of playing and finding connection to other people and looking people in the eye, you know, with, when we improvise, you know, it's really so much of it is about eye contact. It's all about listening and uh it's about give and take you know and so i f and it's about play you know <laughs> exactly it's about play and and so that you know so much can be taken from a person but uh but if we if we can sort of like be this reminder of people uh, uh you know of be just an interpersonal connection I think Spolin talks about the field, right? And mm -hmm. I always felt like that was like the playing field, like the soccer field. But now I'm starting to think that it's this sort of interpersonal connection. Ooh, like a like a energy field, force field, yeah, force field, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I get. I know. I remember feeling like when we used to wear the suits. We, we wore suits for a long time. The business suits. I, we still do a variation on the suit. And we would climb all over each other. You know, we were doing a lot of physical mirror transformation stuff. And I remember thinking, not that it was subversive, but that it was certainly surrealist. The especially in New York, you know, a business center where you see people in suits behaving like people in suits. You know, like stay within the lines and get your four hundred one k and all that sort of stuff. And we took that image and morphed it. And I I used to often wonder like. I wonder if people get that idea that we're subverting that and that that gives them permission to subvert things in their own life. That if they are a guy in a suit, they don't have to be the guy in the suit anymore or whatever the proverbial suit was, you know, to give people a, a license to be crazy. I think the only license we really gave them was to take improv classes. But hopefully then that informs other things they do. They start traveling more, you know, they get into other art forms they talk differently to their spouse and kids and stuff like that I, you know it, this might be getting back to like our the earlier part you know uh john keith johnston 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 keith johnston from loose uh, moose yeah in uh, canada he, i don't but he's british does he still have a british accent does anybody know i think he somebody does knows. somebody hey, knows somebody does know 
And he, like in his book, Impro, he talks about like uh, sanity being a pretense. And, um, and that's the reason <laughs> why, why people go to the theater is yeah. so that they can for a while just sort of, uh, you know, a, watch people who are allowed to take down the mask and reveal their sanity or insanity or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the other thing that I think is interesting uh, about him is that he says, like he talks about making ordinary choices on stage. So, uh, and I don't know where I read this or saw this, but I think that he said that the reason uh, you should make ordinary choices is because ordinary isn't is important like it's important to have a sandwich because you have to eat it's important to do your laundry so all these uh these mundane choices or whatever are actually very important and so that's why you should you should start i i say you should start your scene with those with those yeah. mundane things we talk about being like in the ordinary world. That's one mm-hmm. thing that I wish that we would do more of in our show is get back to like the very beginning. Well, a couple of things like, uh, you know, maybe making those ordinary choices of ordinary activities so that we have some place to go. But then also, you know, what, what Shira was working with us recently that being Shira Piven, Piven yeah. who was our original director. And that like sort of um, uh, just starting with just starting with connection and mm-hmm. no matter what that is, whether it's like through movement or whatever, a stillness, but just like starting just being totally connected. What's it feel like for you when you're having a rough show? Does that happen very often? Because you've been doing it a long time. And I remember when I was younger and I would have a rough show, I was miserable. I was inconsolable for weeks. And now, I don't think we have, like, disastrous shows. Like, you know, our, our worst show is pretty good. Does that make sense? But, like... I guess my question is like, do you have skills during a set that's sort of wobbly to sort of to get it back on track? Or do you just chalk it up to like, all right, this one's not going to be great? Um, I, you know, some, uh, what I try to do is just be patient. And uh, a lot of times when I'm, when I'm having those kinds of shows, it's because, like I was saying before, like it's because I'm tired. Uh, you know, if I didn't get enough sleep, or if I just, you know, had like. Are you able to like forgive yourself in that moment and just say, "Ah, eh, it's just that kind of night," or do you like turn inward and be like, "Why can't you bring it?" So I don't get angry. Sometimes I feel. Sometimes I feel embarrassed, like afterwards, like and people are you know, stopping, you know, staying afterwards and, you know, audience members are, are talking to me. Sometimes I feel embarrassed and I feel like saying, like, please come back. I can say that when the audience stays after, they had a good time. If they left, they didn't have as good a time as you would have liked them to have, you know, or they had something else going on. 
But for the most part, like when they stick around, even when, like our last show we did was sold out for one. That was awesome. That after doing this for 20 years to have a sold out show where we added seats, that was amazing. So there's value there. So I appreciated that. But afterwards I felt like, ah, that wasn't an amazing show. I wanted to have an amazing show. But the audience stuck around and were talking about it and people online were like, that was an amazing show. So I've I've learned that my my internal metering to determine if it's a good show or not is faulty. It's like based on how many laughs I personally get. And the laughs are always much louder in my ear for the things I said than anyone else's. Like I listen to the recordings we make after and I'm always like, huh, only 40% laughed at that and I thought it was 120. Uh, You know what I mean? So I try and tell myself to like, just, you know, let let it go. It's not, it's easier now than it used to be. It's, It's still not that easy. Like a lot of times I feel like I don't, uh, like I'm not in it. Like I used to be so like uh, reticent and inhibited, like especially when like, like a long, long time ago play, playing with you guys, like I would feel so like in over my head, like with, uh, with everyone, I would feel like, oh my gosh, everyone is so, like everyone is so much like on a different level than mm. me. And yeah. so, yeah, I used to sort of be afraid to sort of jump out. And now I don't necessarily have that at all. But what I do have sometimes is that feeling of like, like I can't, I'm not, I'm not connecting or whatever. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. Uh, I try to remind myself in that moment to just like not to, not to worry about it just to yeah. sort of be calm and just do keep on doing what you're doing and then there then there are times when all of a sudden like I, i'm in and uh and then i can sort of feel it and um and sometimes some sometimes it's only like just for a couple of minutes in, in a sh- in a show when i feel like really connected Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I get that. I This is where, for you young improvisers th- listening, a warm-up is always important to get you connected and get you in a state of flow before you begin your set. I can interrupt you there. And of course. And that, and that thing. Sometimes I feel like the warm-up has, like, the opposite effect on me. Yeah, me too. If it, Especially if it's a rote one that you've done a thousand times. Like sometimes, like I feel for me, like I want to get into a place of like being relaxed, not necessarily uh, amped up. Yeah, I don't necessarily need to be amped up a lot of times. Sometimes I just need to uh, be relaxed and kind of connected. And so, and some sometimes, like I feel like uh, it's. What's your favorite? Do you have a favorite warm up? Do you have a favorite warm up? No, I. You know, it's interesting because. I just, whatever we do when we're playing, but it really has nothing to do, I think sometimes with us as the group, it's really like, um, it's really has to do with me, like on the subway ride there. Uh, oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like I can- Yeah, yeah, I, I like to travel alone if I can. Like if my wife, my wife or my daughter are coming, I'm like, you, we're not going together. 
we're not going together. I need to be long. I got my headphones on. I got to be listening to some mood altering music, most likely Nine Inch Nails. Something that I like, something I'm into. Certainly no musicals. I don't want to be like in a musical theater mood. Something like High School Musical. Um... Not the Disney show, just high schools that have produced their own versions of High School Musical and recorded it. That's what I want to listen to. Exactly. Yeah, I I think the best warm-up is just sort of goofing around with each other backstage. Like not performative goofing around, but just sort of like, (coughs) you know, making jokes about the world or about each other or, or whatever. And then, and then getting out there. We have, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> for those of you, uh, you know, listening in the future, we're, we're recording this in the middle of the Corona lockdown. We're not even in the same place. Um, <coughs> so if you hear coughs, uh, one of us may be dead too soon, <laughs> too soon. Anyway, um, yeah, like riffing, like having fun. Um, we oh, what I was gonna say is we always have some sort of theatrical opening to our show, um, one way or another, you know. And and I feel like that for me, like when that kicks in, I feel, I feel like I can relax. You know what I mean? Because it's like oh, for the next minute, a minute and a half, there's something professional being produced or being displayed for the audience that we don't have to worry about like the pressure comes off does that make sense that doesn't mean that like every show starts off gangbusters for me there's often times where I'm like what's happening yeah and 20 minutes in the show I'm still like what's happening I used to do uh and I still do like uh alternative solo comedy or whatever and um you were in the scene Matt I was in the you scene were in the scene in the 90s. I was totally in the scene you were doing Toto Kanata, what was it called? Invite them up. Yeah. And then what was the one before that though? The one down, not at Nada, but right next to it, um, Luna Lounge. Oh yeah, Luna Lounge. Yep. Yeah. yeah, you did that. You did all that stuff. All those, all those things. Um, and you know what's so funny is that a lot of times when I would when I would do those things, I would kind of like. There's two things. Um, one was like. Uh, Oh, I, one time Mark Marin said to me, he said, not to name drop, but he said to me at Luna Lounge, he was like, oh, I get it. You just don't, you, he said something like, oh, I get it. You don't, you don't care about making sense or something like that, or nothing <laughs> you're doing is making sense. And I was like, hey, thanks a lot for that. I really appreciate that input because I'm not quite sure what it is. You're not into making sense. Nah, yeah, that's true. And none of it makes sense. Uh, so, um, what's his name? Uh, somebody told me one time they were like, uh, drop the name, Matt. Drop yeah. It. Who was it? It was, who it was, was it? Lou, Vi- Lou Viola. Who's oh, not Louis like, CK. No, it wasn't Louis CK, but, uh, it was Lou Viola. He said, you have a wonderful sense of the absurd. And, um, and I guess that might be true. And at the same time I was thinking, well, like, in so, this, this is the thing that sort of I think of when I when I remember that. I remember one time driving down a road in Pennsylvania, County Line Road, and there was like this a small little uh, um, cell phone store, like a little shack cell phone thing, and uh, they had a big blow up cell phone outside that was kind of like half deflated, that it was kind <laughs> of bent over, and um, yeah. I was thinking that some 
some boss is going to come in and go to some kid who works there, hey, get out there and blow up, blow up the cell phone. And I was thinking, like, that's reality, and it's absurd. It is absurd. Reality is absurd. Absurd. Reality is, we have a game show host president. Yeah. And so some, I think that re- absurdity is really just recognizing reality. Yeah. Um, so do you have a favorite character right now? Do you have a favorite, favorite character you like to do? Like, you mean like around the house? No, I like, I mean, yeah, around the house or in shows. Cause I, I do this, I've been doing this kid is like, well, this is the worst summer camp ever. I don't know where this guy came from, but I like him. And it's a kid. Worst summer camp ever. And he talks nasally. And I, every chance I get, I do it. I have a couple of characters that I do around the house. And uh, one of them is, I, one of them I, always, I only do on vacation. But the other one is, uh, his name is Bundles. And it's inspired by uh, the guy, the character who takes the laundry out in the movie Annie, and uh, Annie oh, yeah. jumps in and mm-hmm. he that's how like, she gets takes out of off. the orphanage. That's how she gets out of the orphanage, right? And Bundles, is, this is not really. I just took the name from that. And Bundles, uh, he does the laundry here, so I guess there is a connection. But Bundles does the laundry, and Bundles is a. He calls like Tracy, calls him Mrs. H, like, hey, Mrs. H. He like knocks, he's like, hey, Una. And he comes in and uh, he loves Matt. Like Bundles, like, just thinks Matt's like the best, you know? And he's like, he comes up like, like when I go out, like drop, you know, because of the whole coronavirus thing, like I'll go out and like bring the garbage out or something. But it's not Matt bringing out the garbage, it's Bundles because Matt told him to. And, uh, Here's the thing, like Bundles loves Matt and everything, and, you know, and, but Matt thinks Bundles is an idiot. And like, <laughs> he's like, oh my God, that idiot, you know, and just like, and, and Bundles is, you know, he would jump off a bridge for Matt. He just loves him. And uh, he's like sort of Matt's lackey. And Matt's like, oh God, this freaking Bundles, Jesus, what an idiot. Like, what an idiot, you know? And, and Tracy and Una will play along. They're like, oh, you're being too hard on him. You're know, <laughs> being too hard on him. And uh, yeah. Tracy, like, flirts with bundles. Like, she'll say, like, uh, like, hey, like, hello, bundles, or whatever. And I'll be like, oh, Mrs. H, you know, like, <laughs> whatever. And, Not now, Mrs. H. You know, I love Matt so much. Yeah, exactly. Good. And, so that's, that's one character I really like doing. And I have another character... I like to do on uh, we we vacation at the Jersey Shore, uh, you know, for like a week or so every summer. And this guy's name is Keith, and uh, he's a house painter, a drifter, and uh, I know he, the type. Yeah, so like I'll be at the beach, you know, at like our blanket at the beach or whatever, and my my whole family sort of comes down. So I'll be like, hey, all right, and I'll walk away, and then I'll come back, like. <laughs> It's like Matt walks away and Keith comes back. Yeah. And, um, and I'll do it like in the house down there. Like I'll go out the back door and then like knock on the front door and be like, Hey, (laughs) and they're always like, which, which, you know, which car is yours, uh, Keith. And I always try to like pick up, pick up, like I'll look down the block and look for like some beat up pickup truck. Like I'm just, and he's just a drifter. 
I like that guy. Um, do do, the, do those types of characters ever make it in the show? Uh, I forbid them to be. Now, uh, they, I think so sometimes. Um, I do like, I never do like full 100% characters, but like if I'm riffing on a certain character in my life, 50% of it will show up. You know, it's always like, I think it was Paul Sills who said, wear it like a straw hat, like wear your choices lightly. Um, and so like I'll come in with, oh, this is this guy I've been doing, but then adjust it to fit whatever scene it's in. I think this is where this guy came from. Worst summer camp ever. You know, um, I'm trying to think if there's any others I do around the house. I'd mostly do silly voices, not necessarily full characters, but silly voices. I think my wife, I think my wife um, finds it annoying. And my daughter does too. My daughter does not like when I speak in other voices. Unless she unless she initiates it. And then I'm like, okay, we can go. But I don't, they don't indulge me. Yeah. They don't. I'm in prison. Matt, I'm in a prison. I remember when you, when uh, I lived, you know, many years ago, uh, living, you know, at my parents' house and you would call and, uh, <laughs> you know, pre-cell phones and you would be like, yeah, this is officer, whatever. And like, calling it to look, looking for me like you were a cop that's hilarious it's pretty funny I, I i was probably really into the jerky boys at that point probably they were prank callers uh i really did enjoy the jerky boys it's an east coast thing i guess so um let me ask you this what's your what's your what's a favorite not the favorite but what's a favorite improv moment you've had either doing your solo stuff i had more questions about the solo stuff if we have time, if we have time. Um, but what's a favorite improv moment, either solo or with a group? I don't really know, actually. I Take mean, there, there's uh, so like in terms of my my solo show that I did um, uh, like two summers ago now, the one that I recorded, there's one called Three Girls on the Rock. That's what we ended up calling it. And uh, because it was about these uh, these these three these girls that uh, were in a you know in a camp and it's like summer camp and one like runs off into the woods and they have to find her they form a search party and everything and one of the things I, I loved about that is and I, I think this is probably generally like uh, I love the sincerity like like playing like a character but playing like the, the like the emotion like very sincerely and the stakes are very very high you know mm -hmm. and just like like these sort of like playing like a teenage girl or whatever so kind of like you know definitely a ridiculous character for me to be doing but at the same time at playing these the, like playing whatever the situation is like if the stakes are very high and like there's just like a lot of emotion attached to it and mm -hmm. trying to find the sincerity in that and that's a very larry grim thing mm -hmm. you remember larry grim good yeah. old larry grim out there in yeah. chicago he yeah. used to i remember him side coaching when we were uh the call of sincerity yeah he would say like sincerity sincerity yeah. and um that's like my favorite side coach is like sincerity. So um, 
I think those are like my favorite moments where like there's the stakes are really high over something completely. Do you find yourself sort of switching between, because you're very funny and you've done stand up and, and bits. Do you find yourself switching between sort of the comic mind and the earnest actor spirit, if you will? Like during during the course of a show or is it between shows or like do you come out in one show and it's like I'm you just find yourself being a great actor or do you or or a different show find yourself being a comedian or are you able to switch between scenes or within a scene? Are you aware of that change? Uh no. But I do think of something that you said before, which is uh to display skill. So like don't be afraid to uh, like have like flashes of skill. And so um, at this age where I'm at right now, like we've worked so hard at this and we have, uh, you know, studied this thing for so long. I mean, of course we've developed some skills or, or whatever, uh, whatever it is. And then so to, uh, to sort of give myself permission to display skill um, and and not to... That's what the audience wants, you know what I mean? Yeah, not feel like you're self-indulgent or selfish to be like, I'm going to be good at this right now. Um, like, I love hitting the comedy hard. Like, I get real joy out of that. And a lot of times that's verbal and sometimes it's physical and falling down and all that kind of stuff. And I really love it because I'm aware that the audience wants to see that. The audience wants to see somebody be good at something. That's why we go to Broadway shows because we see people who are amazing, amazing performers, amazing scripts, sometimes middling music, whatever. I'm not going to name any particular show. But, you know, you, you go to see people that are just amazing. You know, or and it's a cliche, but you hear people that go to a show and afterwards like they were so talented. Like people want to be in the presence of people who are genuinely talented. And so I often feel pressure to be like, Oh, I've got to appear talented tonight. Like the everyone deserves your best, right? And that's not just on stage, but in life, right? If you're given a task, do your best. Right? Whatever you're gonna be. You're gonna be a a, a guy who takes down the laundry. Be the best. Be the best you can you can be at that. And because we've been doing it for so many years and we're still at the same level we've always been at in terms of um, exposure, you know, we've been at the same theater for like a decade now, um, which is both cool to say we've been there a decade, but at the same time, it's like, I would like to be doing this at Madison Square Garden. But it, the trick is, the mental trick is to not be disheartened and just say, well, I need to perform as if this is Madison Square Garden. And like be at that level. I don't always get there. But I, I try to remind myself of that. Like you've got to go be awesome tonight. You know. I don't know if we always are. Um, Alright so I want to ask you just a couple more questions about. Because we're almost about an hour. And I'm just assuming it should be an hour. I don't know. But about solo performing. I've seen your solo perform a couple times, even going back, like when you used to do scripted stuff, but the solo improv stuff, you often have a musician or musicians, and you often interact with the audience. How much of that is just to sort of B 
be in the room with them and how much of that is to serve the fodder of your improv. You know what I mean? Like, because you don't have partners giving you the who, a what, or a where, but like, what are you getting off of the people and how many people do you need around it? Because it's very participatory. You know, you sort of get suggestions um, in different ways. Lately, it's just been sort of asking people directly to tell stories. Um, I think that's a long enough question. I can stretch out the question if you want. It's, this is my answer to it. When, um, so I went to a little college called Allentown College of St. Francis de Sales. You know, it's mm -hmm. a very small school, mm -hmm. went for theater. And then afterwards, I went one year to Villanova uh, for graduate school. And I, you know. You played ball. Yeah, no. Uh, my, you know, I was like, you know, I was, it was like, I, I was like very self-destructive and, and everything uh, in that period of my life. And I, I guess maybe I'm sort of hard on myself, but anyway, um, but I had this acting teacher at Villanova and she was great. She was a Polish uh, um, person and her name was Helena White and she was just wonderful. And um, I remember doing this, uh, I remember doing this um, scene, uh, I was playing Biff in, along the, uh, in, uh, Death of Salesman, right? And no, it's like shoot Biff a bit in, in, in Long Day's Journey. That's, right. Yeah, exactly. That's where Biff should be. It's the same thing. Um, so I was doing that, and um, it was at Villanova, and right when our scene was starting, we were presenting in class, and right when we were starting, the the um, chapel bells uh, on the campus like started to you know go, and you're just beautiful. And um, I just kind of kept on going and I, you know, just blocked them out and just kept on going. And then when the scene was over and I was waiting for my feedback from Helena, she was sitting in the corner like this, like she had like her hands over her, her mouth and she was looking at me and she just like sat there. And then she, she said, the bells, the bells. And I was like, what? And she's like, you didn't let in the bells. She said, you didn't take time in your scene just to, just for us all to hear the bells. And, um, and I was like, whoa. Uh, and so, so that, like, that was, that was huge for me. That was like one of the biggest acting lessons I've ever learned was like, like, oh, that happened, like sort of let it in and like, you can even what, however you do it, but like it definitely happened, and not to deny it or anything. So, uh, in terms of uh, it's one of the things I love about improvisation, and uh, is that uh, is that you know all this stuff is like right here into like you know Viola Spolin says you know see and be seen. And so like to try to like, like see everything in, in the space uh, and everyone in the space, especially at the, um, especially in the beginning, right? Just like sort of like really taken in and really try to connect with everything. Um, and then like, as, as we get going, like talking about like sort of solo stuff, there was uh there was in this one that I did recently, uh, 
that's recorded that you can see on YouTube. Um, in the three what girls. What was the name of that website? That it was, uh, it's just Matt Higgins YouTube. Yeah. YouTube. So, okay. Yeah. Let me write that down. But there's a kid in the audience and, um, I, it was like this sort of this love scene and, um, and it was, uh, it was from, ha it was, no, it was three girls on a rock. It was like this love scene. And I was looking at the other character that I had, you know, imagined and, uh, the kid in the audience said, um, I love you. And wow. uh, it was as if it was the imaginary character saying it to me. And then I said, I love you too. And it was funny, but at the same time, it was really beautiful and sincere. But then once I knew that, like I knew like later on, I could cue him to say that. And I, Later on, I wanted him to say it, and I gave him a, a gentle sort of like cue, and yeah. he said it. And then once he, once I had given him that cue, then he knew. Then I didn't need to cue him anymore. He was just like sort of right there. And I wonder so, if it had to be a kid, if a grown-up would have been too self-conscious. You know what I mean? Like so much of improv is like being childlike and playing. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that that's true. I think that um, I think that it probably did have to be a. Hey, it's seven o'clock. Oh, it's seven o'clock. We gotta go make some noise. Are you hearing it? I'm not hearing it in my neighborhood. Yeah. Wait, right, maybe we should wrap it up there. Okay. We'll uh, we'll do this again, and we're gonna talk about uh, what it is, what it's like to be an improv teacher. This is kind of like the bells, right? Just like the bells, you gotta let it in. Yeah. And that's another sort of real, very cool thing that we do. They're early in your neighborhood, Matt. Yeah. Well, I live it's six, it's six, no, now it's seven. I live closer to the. Now I can hear it. <laughs> this is how we're getting through it as a city is uh, every night at seven. Everybody's going crazy. All right, Matt, we'll leave it there. We'll let the bells in. And uh, I'll see you again. Stay safe. Keep it real, dog. Worst summer camp ever. <laughs>